<clears throat> Hi there, thank you for joining me. This is Yolanda and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And um, we're um, midway of chapter two. And uh, I will continue with the heading of Spiritism. <clears throat> and these are recollections of Joseph Smith III um, from his childhood going forward. Um, here we go. Thank you for joining me. It will be remembered by those familiar with that phase of current history that about 1848, what was known as spirit rapping, was introduced by the Fox sisters in western New York, from whence it spread practically all over the nation. It reached Illinois about 1850, when together with pencil writing and other forms of spirit manifestation, it became it began to be practised in Hancock County, cropping out in the family of James Shadsey, who lived on a farm in Sonora Township, adjoining my father's land. I was working upon father's farm at the time, and in visiting the Chadsey home became acquainted with this spirit writing business, Mrs Chadsey being the medium. Hi there, welcome to the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III. This is Yolanda sharing with you and we're halfway through chapter 2 on page 14 of the memoirs. Um, and the title of this uh, section is Spiritism. And um, we shall begin. It will be remembered by those familiar with that phase of current history that about 1848, what was known as spirit rapping, was introduced by the Fox sisters in western New York, from whence it spread practically all over the nation. It reached Illinois about 1850, when together with pencil writing and other forms of spirit manifestation, it began to be practised in Hancock County, cropping out in the family of James Chadsey, who lived on a farm in Sonora Township, adjoining my father's land. I was working upon father's farm at the time, and in visiting the Chadsey home, became acquainted with his spirit writing business, Mrs Chadsey being the medium. My nearest neighbour was a man by the name of James Richardson, an early convert, an early church convert from England. That's me too, from England. With his wife, he lived on a small piece of land across the highway from ours. He had refused to go west at the time of the breakup and had turned agnostic. As these manifestations progressed on the Chadsey farm, he showed an intense interest in the phenomena and finally became an ardent spiritist, so-called. He and I spent an evening discussing the various phases of the subject and together used frequently to attend the seances held by Mrs Chadsey. We procured certain works on spiritism, which we read and discussed together. Occasionally, we would experience a species of occult manifestation between us, but nothing happened which could be construed as immediately confirming by actual evidence the reality or truth of the theories advanced by those believers. Our investigations had intermittently extended over a period of two or three years when a communication was received by Mrs Chadsey purporting to come from 
this old-time friend, Oliver B. Huntington. The communication stated distinctly... <laughs> I remember reading this story, so I chuckle. Um, <clears throat> the communication stated distinctly that he had died of cholera at Watertown, New York, given the date of death and expressing pleasure at thus being able to communicate with the living. It was signed plainly in the very handwriting of the man himself, which I readily recognised, for I had been in correspondence with him and knew it perfectly. My friend Richardson and I had reached the point in our investigation and observances of the sciences where we had decided to make a test as to the genuineness of the messages received by Mrs Chancy, and this communication seemed to afford us an opportunity. Without delay, I wrote to Mrs Huntington at Watertown, telling her that I had heard that Oliver was dead, given the date and place, mentioning the disease which had borne him off, and asked, asking for her, from her a reply. Owing to the fact that mouths were then carried across country by stage and across lakes by boats, it was a full month before I received an answer. It came in the form of a letter from Mrs Huntington's brother, who stated that his sister with her husband Oliver and their family had left Watertown some months before to go to Utah, and that at the last account he had received Oliver was living and well and had not to the writer's, uh, the writer's knowledge even been ill. He added that he had forwarded my letter to them and they would doubtless answer it upon receipt. In due course of time, I did receive a letter from Oliver himself, <laughs> dated at Fort Laramie, Wyoming, and confirming the statement that he was perfectly well and hearty. This incident closed the investigations of my friend Richardson and myself into the current phenomena of spiritualism. He became extremely sceptical and I utterly disgusted with the so-called spirit manifestations as displayed by those declared to be mediums. I had seen table tipping and witnessed several times the pencil writing performances, but came to the conclusion that so far my experience had proved there was absolutely no good in it or in any part of it. I had read Andrew Jackson Davis nature's divine revelation and his great harmonia as far as a third volume and had discovered some very good reasons or so i considered them to discard <clears throat> as evidence much of that which was presented i had no desire to study further what seemed to me so unreliable and mystic a science as spiritualism at that pre that time presented Thenceforward, I let it alone, regarding it as a matter of mental speculation, unworthy attention, investigation of an honest man who was not actually willing to be humbugged, a result which I certainly did not wish to invite. Um, I need to fill you in a little bit of um, why Joseph Smith III was doing this. After his dad's death, um, he and his mum and his family went through a lot of persecution and he kind of detached himself from um, any religious thinking. Um, obviously, he was 11 when his dad died and it was a lot of big, a big thing that happened. Um, and um, so he explored 
these these things as he's as he was growing up. So his dad well dad when he was eleven and obviously um he um he came back into um prayerfulness um you know in connection um a bit later on in his twenties but um I'll share that. Obviously you'll find out because obviously he became president of uh the um restored the reorganised Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So you find out in good time. Anyway, we will carry on. In 1885, on the occasion of my second visit to Utah, I was privileged to meet Oliver B. Huntington in his home at Springfield, some 50 or 60 miles south of Salt Lake City. There I conversed freely with him as an old acquaintance and friend. He was then living with his third wife, his first and second, having each in turn refused to remain with him when he attempted polygamy. I did not meet his first wife, who was, I was told, a most estimable woman. Neither did I see the second one, a nurse of considerable local standing. Um... The next topic, a fight. A circumstance connected with the school held in the store building made an indelible impression upon my mind, both because of the incident itself and because of the men involved. The school was held in the upper room of the building, which stood with its end to the north on the south side of Water Street. Directly opposite on the north side stood the store of William and Wilson Law, on the corner of the block opposite, west of William Law's house, and adjoining his store, there is a sort of feed yard into which teams could be driven and fed while their owners were, were trading. Ephraim Potter, a clerk in that store, used to board at our house, and I knew him quite well. One noon, I was sent on an errand to the store, and there heard a conversation between Wilson Law and a brother in the church by the name of Uriah Chitterden, H. Nickerson. They were discussing a tree which Nickerson had cut on a certain island on the Iowa side of the river, on which both he and the Law brothers owned land. Wilson Law accused Nickerson of stealing his timber, claiming that the tree cut had been on his land that Nickerson knew it was and that he proposed making Nickerson trouble over it. Brother Nickerson replied that at the time he cut the tree he believed it to be on his own land and still thought so but not wishing to have trouble suggested they get a surveyor have the land surveyed and if it were found the timber belonged to law he would pay for it. They would get two brethren to appraise the wood and he would pay the amount decided upon as as its value. Law seemed not to agree to this proposal and Nickerson told him that if he preferred it that way he could take the timber and pay him. Nickerson for hewing it. <laughs> he even added that if Law were still not satisfied Law could take the tree and Nickerson would say nothing further about it as he did not think it seemingly to have contention between brethren over such a matter. None of this seemed to suit Wilson Law, and he threatened to uh, prosecute Nickerson for stealing the timber. Just then, the school bell rang, and I ran across the street and up into the schoolroom. There were three windows in the north end of the building, and my seat was at the western one. Soon I heard a commotion outside, and looking out, I saw a number of men pouring out of the store, perhaps six or eight of them, and passing through a gate into the yard. Among them were Uncle Hiram, Wilson Law, 
Potter, Nickerson and some others whose names I do not now recall. Wilson Law was stripping off his coat and vest as he came, which he handed to Uncle Hiram to hold. I was curious to know what it all meant as I saw Wilson take off his cravat also and roll up his sleeves. He was talking pretty loudly and though I could not distinguish his words, I gathered that he was angry with Nickerson about the timber. I wondered why my Uncle Hiram was holding Law's clothing for him but soon discovered for I saw Wilson Law strike twice at Nickerson apparently with the intention of giving him a great thrashing. After the second blow, Nickerson sprang forward using Law pretty roughly. He would evidently have administered a severe beating had it not been for the fact that, seeing the way the conflict was turning, Uncle Hiraman and others interfered and drew the men apart. I remember how excited I was and how ashamed I felt that my uncle had lowered his dignity by mixing in the quarrel between the two men. Wilson Law was a man of business and reputed wealth, while Nickerson was poor and hard-working. It seemed those surrounding the two men had taken sides with Law and were quite willing to see Nickerson punished. But when they saw it was likely that Nickerson would do what punishing was done in the melee, they were then quite ready to separate the men and stop the fighting. I heard Nickerson say, "'And so this is your Christianity, brethren,' When you thought I could be whipped, you were willing to witness it. But when you found I could take care of myself, you were ready to keep us apart. Whether or not a church suit followed this disturbance, I do not know. But I confess that my opinion of my Uncle Hiram received a decided blow and my regard for him was sadly damaged. I had thought him so upright and just that I had expected him to take the part of the humbler brother. What I had overheard between the two men in the store and Nickerson's statement that he was willing to do what was right and whatever any two of his brethren would decide was just in the matter, had made me feel that an advantage had been taken of him, doubtless because he was a poor man. Of course, I may have erred in this conclusion or as to their motives, but I heard afterwards that when the survey was made, the poorer brother was justified for the tree was found to have been on his own land. I met this UCH Nickerson a good many years after, when he used to come down from Wisconsin to attend our Northern Illinois District Conferences. Once I conversed with him in reference to this trouble, which he remembered distinctly, one thing is certain, Chit Nickerson, as he was familiarly familiarly called, I'm sorry, I'll get my tongue tied there. I'm sure you do the same at times. Um, familiarly called, retained his faith in Joseph Smith as a prophet of God in the angel's message, in the validity of the Book of Mormon and in the integrity of the church instituted by the prophet under divine direction. He died in that faith, whatever may have been his wanderings before reaching the goal of the grave. <clears throat> Next, um, Mr. Kelsey. The next school I attended before the Saints left Illinois was conducted in the 70s hall. The teacher was Eli Beal Kelsey, who afterward became quite a noted elder in the economies of that faction of the church, which was under the rule of Brigham Young. I attended this school more than one term, probably in the fall of 1844 and the summer of 1845. The hall was located on Parley Street, the main thoroughfare 
extending between what was known as the hill and the ferry at Isaac Gallen's estate. Among my schoolmates here were Henry Coolidge, Sidney and Wycliffe Rigdon, Edwin and Thomas Stafford, Joseph Brigham and Violet Young, some the children of Heber C. Kimball, the children of David Yearsley, one of whom was named Elizabeth, Mary Tuttle, Titus Billings and Edward and Lydia Partridge. It was a good sized school and there was a considerable there was considerable rivalry in the spelling classes. <clears throat> Usually Mary Tuttle, Henry Coolidge and I would spell the rest down and take turns in leaving off head <clears throat> to again spell our way up. On the closing day of one term, when the class came to spell down, the teacher announced the rule that but one trial at a word would be given each pupil and that if the word were missed opportunity to spell it, it would pass at once to the next in line. The class had narrowed down to the three of us, Mary, Henry and I. After a number of words went the rounds, teacher Kelsey gave a word to Mary, which she missed. He suggested that she try it again and again she missed it. Without waiting for him to say next, I promptly spelled the word correctly. He reproved me for being too eager. At which reprimand, I, re I called his attention to the fact that he himself had broken his own rules, as he stated at the beginning that in giving Mary a second trial, he had, act he had acted unfairly to all the rest of us. He commented that, being a lady, she should be given a second opportunity. <laughs> to this I demurred upon the ground that no such favouritism should be shown in such a contest. Mary was in tears and some confusion seemed imminent. A number of spectators were present and I proposed leaving to them the question as to whether or not I had been within my rights. To this, teacher Kelsey would not agree and undertook to adjust the matter by saying he would divide the prize between three of us, between us three. I objected to that plan, stating that I did not care specially for the prize and certainly did not want it if it were not rightfully mine and fairly won, adding that he could dispose of it as he pleased. General feeling among the children had been that Mary was a favourite of the teachers and this incident showed that it was useless for us to contend against her. Though I cannot fix the date in memory, I remember well the day when Sid Sidney and Wycliffe Rigdon came to the school to say goodbye, the day before the family left for Pittsburgh at the separation. It was at this school also that the teacher instituted a system of police regulation among the children for the purpose of preventing truancy. He appointed various ones as special police, the duties to last one week. During one week of my services in this capacity, I had trouble with one of the Stafford boys who became very angry in play at recess and proposed to leave the grounds. I prevented him doing so, but it was at the expense of a personal encounter between us. The result was the abandonment of the system, for the teacher thought his instructions were being construed too strictly and enforced too vigorously, and he was fearful further unfriendly conflicts would ensue. An incident of a rather laughable character comes to memory as being connected with this school. Joseph A. Young, son of Brigham Young, was something of a fop as a boy. He was rather vain of his good looks. His white complexion and curly hair, which was inclined to the red in colour, 
One day he came to school all nicely dressed up and brought with him a vial of cinnamon, essence or oil. With this he dabbed his handkerchief in order that a nice fragrance might attend his walk. Of course we were all duly impressed and anxious to have some. We asked him to share with us, which he declined to do and kept dabbing it at intervals on his hair and clothes as fast as the air and sun would complete would combine to cause it to lose its power the former at least was quite well saturated with it after a while and we were quite envious as a consequence this brought us no benefit for he didn't share his treasure with us however we were consoled next day when our comrade came to school for his hair had been so badly burned with the essence that it had broken off wherever rubbed a little and looked worse than if he had haggled it to pieces with the shears so we had our laugh but it was a laugh with him and not at him for joseph a was a good-natured fellow and appreciated any joke even when on himself a part of the education we received in the school kept in the 70s hall had reference to our conduct and manners we were taught how to stand properly how to walk how to enter a room either public or private the art of being polite in company and other useful things calculated to enable us to be at ease and carry ourselves with a degree of grace in the presence of others we were taught to reverence age to take off our hats and bow to elderly people when met to avoid being boisterous in demeanour or harsh or loud in voice and in general to behave ourselves properly at all times we were expected to be kind to our associates to avoid imposing upon those weaker and younger to go to church and to conduct ourselves in a respectable manner while there and to engage in no unnecessary affairs on sunday the rest day we were expected to enter the schoolroom quietly to take off our hats and hang them in places provided to greet the teacher with a courteous bow and to proceed at once to our seats if called upon to hand a book to anyone we were shown how to properly approach the person and how to respect or excuse me how to present the article in a graceful manner all these and a variety of other instructions respecting conduct were made a part of our daily practice and formed a definite part of our education at the time the Rigdon boys left Nauvoo, as I have said, before the term closed, and I never saw either of them again until in the fall of 1905. I met John Wycliffe in Salt Lake City. He had um, separated from his family and had joined the church in Utah. I learned that his brother Sidney died quietly a number of years ago. I think I've read that wrong. I learned that his brother Sidney died quiet a number of years ago. That's um once again this is obviously the the wording of of a time gone past. Um I'm not sure if it's a a mis um misprint where it should say quite a number of years ago or because it's actually spelt quiet. It might be a misprint. Um on to Mr Trip. The next topic my impression now is that the school just described was the last I attended before the breaking up of at Nauvoo. However, it may have been in the summer of 1847 that I attended one kept in a building erected and occupied by Lucian Woodworth, 
otherwise known as the Pagan Prophet, a gunsmith by trade. That school was taught by a Mr Tripp, a fair blue-eyed man with curly hair and a very pleasant and affable manner. Here I remember we came in contact with some rather rough and undesirable boys who belonged to the Bruce and Allen families. There were five of the Bruce boys and three or four of the Allens. They had an alley. They had an ally of their own stamp. Huh? I think it's meant to say. Excuse me again. <laughs> they had an alley of their own stamp. One. Arthur Foster, son of a neighbour who lived in the house where Uncle Samuel Smith had lived and died. Of these boys, Tom Bruce and John Allen were the ringleaders. I think it's meant to say ally, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you for your patience in listening to me. Um, it is wonderful that we've got these memories to, um, to read as if it's happening to us if it's first hand. These words of um, Joseph Smith III from his childhood. You know, he lived from the years 1832 to 1914, so a very long time ago these recollections are made. Let me carry on. Near the school lived a family of new citizens named Kent, and not far below another by the name of Elliot. These were quite good people who came in with the influx into the city of those who came to buy property cheaply from outgoing saints. There were two girls in the Ellert family and a small partially crippled boy in the Kent family. The latter was named Geoffrey and between him and my brother Frederick there sprang up quite a friendship. Frederick was tall for his age and slender, very kindly in disposition and especially tender and considerate of those who were weak or afflicted or in any trouble with the boys. Frederick got into the habit of carrying little Geoffrey Kent home from school on his back, which he could easily do as Geoffrey was very small and light. These rough Bruce boys and their little band took a notion to torment the little fellows and would run up behind Frederick as he was carrying Geoffrey, jostle against them to make them stagger or fall or jump upon Geoffrey's back to frighten and annoy. Two or three times they had thus thrown the boys down and once had hurt Geoffrey enough to make him cry. I remonstrated with them, told them they ought not to do that, for one or both of the little boys might get hurt. I asked them politely enough to refrain from annoying the children a bit further. One of the older ones pertly told me to go to the devil. Tom Bruce and John Allen were about my age and size, and Arthur Foster was a trifle smaller. These rowdies laughed at me when I told them they must quit bothering the boys or I would make them and, and taunted me by saying they would do as they pleased and I wouldn't help myself. To this I simply answered, well, we will see. In the afternoon, when school was out, my brother picked Geoffrey up on his back as usual and the two started down the street, full of glee and jollity. They had gone but a little way when one of these rowdy boys which one I do not now remember, ran and jumped upon Geoffrey's back, very nearly throwing him off and frightening him to cry. This act aroused my indignation and I turned to the crowd of youngsters and told them that the next one who did that would get hurt. It had rained in the morning and we had gone to school under the shelter of a large umbrella, which I was carrying in my hand. 
it was still quite wet and heavy from the early shower. The boys held a consultation, the leaders urging Arthur Foster to make another leap at the boys and promising him to keep me from interfering. So Arthur skipped up behind the boys and sprang upon their backs. He had no sooner reached the ground afterward that than I struck him full across the back with the heavy wet umbrella, just as I held it folded up in my hand. It was an old-fashioned one with heavy wooden staff, ribs of whalebone and spreading wires of steel. Arthur howled with pain and I turned to the crowd of boys and told them that if anyone else wanted to try that game now was his opportunity, but that if any one of them did dare to touch either of the little boys, he would be served as I had served Arthur. That was the end of the row, for apparently none cared to run the risk of being struck similarly. Arthur threatened to tell his mother, and I rather expected he would, but if he did, my own mother did not hear of it. For a little while afterward, having occasion to use the umbrella, she found the stock broken and the wires bent. Showing it to me, she asked if I knew how it got in this condition, and I replied, It probably happened when I struck Arthur, Forrest, Arthur Foster with it the day it rained. Well, you must have struck him pretty hard to break it like this, she commented. I told her I did, that I hit him just as hard as I could. When she asked why, I told her the whole story. She thought I should not have struck Arthur, but I told her I just couldn't help it, that the little fellows could not defend themselves and that I had felt bound to do what I could to protect them after giving their tormentors fair warning. The lads were not disturbing again. And the balance of the school term passed off pleasantly, according to my recollection. Next um, section, home study. There was an old Irish man who taught school in the 70s hall for, the ter for a term or two, I think about 1847. I was lamentably deficient in arithmetic had worn out copy after copy of Ray's arithmetic in my various attempts to master its difficulties, but would promptly be turned back at the beginning of each term. I seemed to balk at vulgar fractions and did not succeed in getting beyond the merest rudiments of this most necessary branch of education. I was desirous of mending in this particular as my mother was engaged in keeping the hotel and I knew in order to be of help to her I should have some business qualifications, among them a working knowledge of figures. Mother encouraged me to attend this Irishman's school. Accordingly, I went up, asked for an interview and was told to come back at the noon hour. At the appointed time, I called upon the aged man and told him that I wanted to enter his school. He looked at me a bit, handed me a book, opened at a certain piece of reading and asked me to read it for him. Taking the book, I did as requested, whereupon he remarked, young man, I can do nothing for you. A boy who can read like that can better teach me than I him. I tried to explain that it was arithmetic I needed, but failed to prevail upon him to take me as a pupil. Thus it happened that the term of school under Mr. Tripp was really the end of my boyhood school days. It is but fair to add, however, that during the summer and fall of 1846, while the mansion was being occupied by renters, first by William Marks and then by Van Tull, um, Dr. John M. 
Bernhissel boarded with us in the Hugh White House. He had considerable leisure at his dis disposal and agreed to help me in the study of grammar. He consented to hear my recitations, provided I would secure two copies of the book used, Brown's Grammar. This I did, and during that season I studied with him, the arrangement proving to be a very pleasing and profitable one for me. It largely laid the foundation for what usefulness I have been able to exercise in the conduct of literary affairs afterwards, afterward imposed upon me. <clears throat> While my father was yet living, I studied German for a time under the tutelage of Orson Hyde, following his return from Germany. This study was broken up by the confusion attending the, perse the peculiar persecution under a legal guise to which father was subjected at that time. I also studied French for a short period under the guidance of a Frenchman named Victor Chenult. <laughs> I'm not sure how to say that. Um, who sometime after father's death became a boarder at our house and sought to maintain himself by teaching the language in the city. He did not meet... With much success and the school with which he was connected broke up before <clears throat> I had succeeded in making any great advancement in the language. Genault moved away and years after I met him at Janesville, Wisconsin, where he had married and was keeping a music and notion store. He was a genial little man, well qualified to teach his native tongue, and I had made a good beginning under his instruction. It was largely my own fault that I did not take better advantage of the splendid opportunities to continue my studies in French afforded by the Icarian Society under the leadership of Monsieur Cabot. Cabot. They purchased about 1850 the temple grounds and adjacent property and established a good school in connection with their other activities, which school I might have attended. <clears throat> While attending the school taught by James Monroe, along with my other work, I took a course in Latin, which I found very useful in my later studies of law. <clears throat> to make amends for my lack of acquirement in mathematics, the winter I was 21, I took up the study of arithmetic and bookkeeping by myself, using a textbook published by James Arlington Bennett. I think the title was The American Businessman's System of Arithmetic and Bookkeeping. It proved an excellent work for me and I mastered it fairly well during the winter. Undoubtedly, the consciousness of my lack in this direction and the necessity of my particular urge toward improvement quickened what little latent genius for study I may have had and helped me to accomplish a good deal in a short time. Shortly before father's death, I had undertaken at his request to memorise his views on government for the purpose of declaiming it. I had progressed fairly well before he was taken away, but his death removed both the desire and the objective for continued work upon it. My memory was of such a character that any piece of prose or poetry which attracted my attention or fancy was easily retained therein, and while I had no his histrionic ability no special liking for the stage I frequently read in public. Father had put quite a number of books into a collection known as the library, which was dissolved at his death. Some of the volumes were returned to Mother. Some of them I had already read and later Mother secured for me Gibbon's History of Rome, Greece, England and the Continent, 
and a history of the Reformation in concise form. At 14 and 15 years of age, I had become an inveterate reader. Inveterate reader. Early developing a taste for history and the biographies of celebrated men, generals, statesmen, um, philosophers and others. I read every book of these sorts that I could get my hands on and in addition began to develop some liking for the sciences which dealt with the human mind. Soon after my mother's second marriage I began taking a phrenological journal published by Fowler and Wells of New York. In connection with this reading I studied physiology and such works as Coombs and Thal and others on the subjects dealing with the formation of character. A liking for poetry, either natural or acquired, began to develop about that time also, and the standard poets of the day became my delight. Cowper, Young, Gray, Shakespeare, Byron, Dryden, Moore, Scott, and our own American poets became my familiar companions. And of their works, I commenced to gather a collection which has been of great worth and comfort to me throughout my life. Whittier, Longfellow, Holmes, Mrs. Cook, Mrs. Sigourney, Mrs. Hemans and others have been added as I could afford. The first work of fiction I remember reading was The Scottish Chiefs by Jane Porter. This book much impressed me as depicting the erratic characters of Sir William Wallace and others deemed heroes of Scotland and the bitter struggle between Bruce and Edward, rival aspirants for the throne. This book, which I have often reread, created in me a strong dislike of English aggression, a feeling which was greatly deepened and accentuated by my latter perusal of Scott's novel and various stories of the Revolutionary War, one of which I recall entitled 76 was the second book of the king of the kind I ever read. Interesting, huh? <laughs> um, let's carry on. I have taken pleasure in poetry and good works of fiction ever since these boyhood days, as time and opportunity have afforded me its expression. About the time of my majority, I read law under the direction of lawyer William MacLennan of Nauvoo and pursued that study more or less assiduously for some years. In January 1855, I went to Canton, where I studied in the office of Honourable William Kellogg, then a most influential lawyer of Fulton County. While there, I was chosen clerk of the city council and was also employed by postmaster Parley C. Stearns in the post office. In this manner, I was able to pay part of my expenses, but owing to lack of means, I had to discontinue my studies there in 1856 and return home. The foregoing then about sums up what opportunities I had I had had in the way of obtaining a school education of any sort. <clears throat> that is the uh, end of chapter two. Thank you for joining me and um, I hope that you've learned some things. There is plenty more to learn in the next episode. <laughs>